and welcome to the Samungos podcast. This is episode 70. Today's topic is acute kidney injury and our guest is Joel Toff. Now he gave a great talk for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. We're going to play part one of that talk on this episode. You can watch both parts on our special web page, which is www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Probably worth reminding you that there are hundreds more world expert lectures in critical care, emergency medicine, sepsis and more on the Continuous website. So check those out. They are free to watch and there are low cost subscriptions to add CPD certification and more. Now we managed to get Joel on a call to give his top five pearls of wisdom. So let's jump into that. I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, Joel, to uh, the St. Mungo's podcast. We're absolutely delighted. You did an amazing talk for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine on Acute Kidney Injury, which we're about to play shortly. And our users are going to uh, get the chance to watch that video uh, on a special web page that we have. So thank you very much. Um, Joel, before we begin, because you're going to give us uh, some top five pearls, do you mind just letting our listeners know a little bit about you? Where are you in the world and what's your professional background? Yeah, I'm I'm a private practice nephrologist. I work in the just outside of Detroit, though my hospital is on the edge of Detroit. It's kind of a mix of an urban and suburban population. It's a pretty it's a pretty cool place. We have a, a full teaching regimen. I have I teach uh, uh, medical students, residents, and fellows there, and I've really uh, made my mark in nephrology using kind of new media, social media to do medical education. Kind of follow it in the well worn footsteps of the ER. You know, they, they were ahead of emergency medicine was really ahead of everybody in, use, in adapting these techniques to uh, medical education. And uh, I was one who followed in the quick fo- was a quick follower in nephrology. Fantastic. And I should say as well for our listeners, our listeners will know who Scott Weingart is. He's very big in the emergency medicine world, obviously. And he was one of our advisors for the pocketbook. And when I asked him, who do we need to get to speak about nephrology topics? You were the person he recommended. So you're clearly well uh, recommended in the emergency world in nephrology. And we were delighted that you agreed to do that. So thank you very much. So before we play your lecture, Joel, you very kind of joined me today just to give your top five pearls uh, on nephrology or acute kidney injury issues. Uh, so happy for you to share that for us. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when you're in the eMERGE, uh, you see AKI, the pretest probability that that AKI is going to be pre-renal or hemodynamic is very high. And, and the instinct to give fluids when you see an increased creatinine, I don't think is the bad one. I think that's the right thing to do. The only thing I want you to curb that is make sure patient doesn't have ascites, doesn't have pulmonary edema, doesn't have peripheral edema. When you see those warning signs, you want to hesitate before you give IV fluids. But outside of that, go ahead and give fluids. You're going to be right two thirds of the time. You're going to get, you're going to correct that hypone- that uh, acute kidney injury. It's the right way to go. Rule number two, the debate between balanced solutions and saline solutions is way overemphasized. We've got so much data now. I think that the treatment effect, if there is any, is tiny. Take your pick. Go for it. I wouldn't worry about it. Three, dialysis is a treatment of last resort. It is not therapeutic in any way. It is supportive. Delay, delay, delay dialysis to the last possible moment. And because uh, if you delay it even a day, oftentimes those patients won't even need nephrology, need dialysis. And that's been supported in a number of studies that have delayed dialysis. 
for hyperkalemia, common complication of acute kidney injury. We have the new potassium binders, uh, pteromir and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate. They are good. There's a lot of emphasis on sodium zirconium cyclosilicate being faster than pteromir. There's recent data now that's come out of pteromir, real world data showing that it's pretty quick. It's not as slow as you may think. It does need to get to the colon to be effective, but it does work within about four hours. They're seeing a difference in, in potassium. And lastly, another complication of acute kidney injury is metabolic acidosis. We now, as of the bicarb ICU study, there is data specifically in patients with AKI that giving bicarbonate decreases the risk of dialysis and with at a decreased risk of mortality. So treating that metabolic acidosis, pH less than 7.15 with bicarbonate in patients with acute kidney injury does seem to be helpful. That's five. Brilliant. Those are fantastic pearls. Well, let's jump right into your lecture. Thank you. Hello, my name is Joel Toff. I'm a nephrologist and I'm going to be talking about acute kidney injury in the emergency department. To me, the kidney is just a perfect organ of homeostasis, and so I just call acute kidney injury homeostasis lost. So I'm going to just start with the epidemiology, and this to me, there's not a lot of good studies that have looked at what are the etiologies of AKI in the emergency department. This is one of the more commonly referenced one by Kaufman, and what I think is so helpful here is that 71% of cases of AKI that are coming into the emergency department are pre-renal, and you have about 17% that are post-renal or obstructive causes, and then 11% are the remainder. Now, this is a VA hospital, so it's going to be a lot of elderly gentlemen, almost all men. And so I really do believe that that post-renal number is probably inflated over normal. And there's a few other studies less likely to be referenced. And you can see some variability, though the other VA hospital also has a very high rate of pre-renal and post-renal. The Urban Medical Center in Georgia study that's all Black patients, they had quite different studies, but these are really the only three references that I could find to kind of tell us this. But I use that information from that first Kaufman study really to kind of inform me how I handle in the emergency department. And I, I talked that you really want to start with a diagnosis through a therapeutic trial. Because if you look at with 71% pre-renal and 17% pre-renal, that means 88% of your patients are going to get better with either a Foley catheter or a few bags of saline. Like that is going to be the dominant way that you're going to treat this. And so instead of doing all these tests and evaluations to see if the patient needs IV fluids, assume that anybody you find has acute kidney injury, you're going to give them fluids. And the only check you want to do is think for a moment, are the fluids going to harm this patient, right? Are you looking at a patient who has pulmonary edema, peripheral edema, ascites? Those are patients you need to stop and really think carefully before you give them IV fluids, because that's a situation where you may harm them. But outside of those red flags, you have AKI, go ahead and give fluids. Let's see what happens. That's a good therapeutic trial. And you're going to, you know, between that and a Foley, nine times out of 10, you're going to fix the patient. So let's flip it over. Let's take a look at that obstructive patient, right? Again, when you suspect obstruction, what's your review of systems? You know, do they have any changes in urinary habits? Nocturia is oftentimes a symptom of obstruction. 
double voiding. They go to the bathroom and five minutes later, they have to pee again. Any history of cancer, you need to start thinking about, hey, is it abdominal cancer or abdominal lymph nodes that are causing obstruction, right? So not only solid tumors, but you know, leukemias that have large nodes could be causing obstruction there. So something to think about. Incontinence, another possibility. New medications, really focus in on medications that have anticholinergic or alpha antagonist that could be causing a change in the prostate size, history of prostatism. And then for women, right, abnormal vaginal bleeding, most common cause of obstruction in women is cervical cancer. So start thinking about those types of possibilities or uterine prolapse, another cause of obstruction. In terms of the exam, try to palpate the bladder. You can do a bladder scan. You can do post-void residual by catheter, just an in-and-out catheter. And if you have access and the skills to do POCUS, I mean, POCUS of the bladder is pretty simple to do and just try to get a sense of how the size of that bladder and whether it's collapsed. And then, you know, last, kind of a last resort and probably not usually routine, but you can think of getting formal kidney and bladder ultrasound. What about that other, the other, 12%, right? If that's 88%, what's the last 12%? And I kind of break this down into three categories, hemodynamic categories, acute tubular necrosis, and the do not miss. And for one of the concerns always about you know, trying to differentiate hemodynamic or pre-renal insufficiency from acute tubular necrosis, the renal causes you know, taught in medical school to do a fractional excretion of sodium. Maybe during residency, you were taught about a fractional excretion of urea. I don't think these things are very valuable. I think they are interesting techniques. They are clever equations, but these things are not going to help you in the ER. They just aren't accurate enough. This is a recent systematic review and meta-analysis. And, you know, you kind of look at the overall rate 90% sensitivity and 82% specificity. It actually looks pretty good, but when you kind of dig into the methods, what they did is they went through these patients and they removed patients where the fractional excretion of sodium doesn't work very well. Glomerulonephritis, interstitial nephritis, vasculitis, people that have gotten contrast, people that have rhabdo or hemoglobinopathies. You don't have this advantage. You can't select the patients you're going to do the test in to see if the test works well. You have an unselected population. It's not going to work this well. And, you know, when you're facing a pre-test probability of 71% having pre-renal azotemia. If you've eliminated the patients that you're going to harm with giving volume, just give them the fluids and see if they get better. That's in the end, a better test than a fractional excretion of sodium. So again, I had three categories for this, this remaining 12%. The first one was called hemodynamic. And there I'm really thinking of heart failure patients. Sepsis is going to get is also going to be included under acute tubular necrosis, but it comes here because those patients will often be volume depleted. And then the patients that you gave a couple of bags of saline, but they haven't started to get better. And you're starting to think, do you have the wrong diagnosis? So I'm calling that incomplete resuscitation. And, you know, in the end, what you're looking at here is once you've assessed and determined that it's one of these three possibilities, just treat if there is no AKI. If your judgment, you've evaluated the patient, they have incomplete resuscitation, go ahead and continue to give them IV fluids, right? Until you're, you're confident that you've fully resuscitated the patient, and then you can reevaluate. In a sepsis patient, you're going to treat this just like you would any other sepsis patient. 
no real adjustment for the fact that they have acute kidney injury. And same thing with the heart failure. And the hope is that as you treat the sepsis and as you treat the heart failure, that the kidneys will get better because this is kidney failure secondary to an additional primary condition, a condition that you are trained on, on treating. And in fact, you'll have lectures on heart failure and sepsis. And really, there's nothing specific about the kidney disease that changes that therapy. I do want to talk a little bit about cardiorenal syndrome because there's kind of been a revolution in the way we think about cardiorenal syndrome. The initial theory was it was a lack of forward flow, a decreased cardiac output, a decreased perfusion of the kidney because of that decreased cardiac output. But there's been a number of studies that have isolated and worked on improving that cardiac performance. And that really hasn't resulted in improvement of kidney function. Not so helpful. But one of the other things that we see in these patients with cardiorenal syndrome is they get a lot of venous congestion. And what that does is that increases your venous pressure. And your perfusion, your renal perfusion is going to be dependent on the difference between your arterial pressure on the arterial side and the venous pressure on the venous side. And having increased venous pressure and decreased cardiac output really narrows that and results in a pretty significant drop in perfusion. The good news there is if you can diurese, then that will directly help this thing. That'll be allow you to decongest and lower that venous pressure and you get improved renal function. And so the big lesson here is with diuretics and cardiorenal syndrome, if you're facing heart failure as your cause of kidney failure, go with IV diuretics and go big. You're thinking about one to one and a half milligrams per kilogram of IV furosemide as your therapy there. And um, I want you to go large because if you go too far, if you give too much diuretics and you just start getting a tremendous amount of urine output and you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Remember the antidote to IV diuretics is readily at hand, right? You just give them some IV fluids. You can just match their urine output with IV fluids. It's not, you're not going to get into profound trouble. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you'll start treating this and their creatinine will go up and you're like, wow, am I, am I doing a good job of treating that cardiorenal syndrome? They seem to be getting sicker. And the, the goal here is you want to optimize the heart and, and they may have an increase in creatinine, but that's may not represent true kidney damage. And this is an interesting study where they looked at biomarkers of kidney disease. We don't use biomarkers clinically, but they are used in experiments. And so you can think of these as kind of the kidney troponin. And if this rise in creatinine that we see when we treat cardiorenal syndrome, when we treat heart failure, if it was really resulting in significant damage to the kidneys, we would see those biomarkers rise with creatinine. But this is actually what it looked like. This is three different biomarkers, NGAL, MAG, and KIM-1. And these are just scatter plots. There's no signal that as the creatinine is going up, moving from left to right, that these biomarkers are going up and down. They are just a, it's just a scatter plot. And so you can be pretty confident that, you know, these are all hemodynamic changes. You're just getting some increased creatinine from decreased perfusion pressure. It's all going to be reversible after you're able to back off on the diuretic. So don't, don't be nervous about those modest increases in creatinine while you're treating heart failure. Worsening renal function is not associated with six-month mortality. However, incomplete decongestion is. So just be aware of that. You want to complete your decongestion when you treat these patients. 
So the next thing on that list is acute tubular necrosis. And so this is, you know, the big fat middle of that renal failure. It's not obstructive. It's not pre-renal. You're talking about renal disease. Most of it is going to be acute tubular necrosis. And the game here is patience. This is a temporary kidney injury. It's going to get better with time. There is no medicine to give them to speed the correction of this. You're just going to have to wait it out. Where do you see acute tubular necrosis? You see this with hypotension, sepsis, acute anemia, and toxins like aminoglycosides, NSAIDs, etc. Those things can cause acute drops in kidney function, and uh, you just got to wait those out. Okay. And the important thing to recognize is once you've seen that these patients aren't responding to IV fluids, once you've done your therapeutic trial and you're like, nope, not getting better. And you kind of concluded, I think what we're looking at is acute tubular necrosis. You have the right clinical scenario. They're septic or they had an acute drop in blood pressure or they're post-operative and you're, and they're not responding to Lasix. It's not improving their urine output. This is a situation where, okay, I've got ATN. Stop giving the fluids. The fluids are not going to make the patient any better. And this is, I love this quote because it's from, mainly because it's from 1945, one of the very first publications on the management of, they didn't call it AKI, then they called it anuria. And John Kingsley Latimer, pretty famous urologist, he said, the body is not analogous to a tank into which water can be forced until finally it bursts out through the kidneys. Instead, the damaged kidneys cannot be forced. The fluid accumulates in the circulatory system and the heart fails. And so once you recognize this patient is not getting better, you're going to be in for the long haul, stop giving all that IV fluids. You're not making the situation better. You're making it worse. And then this last group, this is the do not miss. And this is, again, I don't, this is not super important for the, the ER doctor. I don't think you're going to be managing this. You're not going to make a specific diagnosis, but you don't want to let the patient go home if they may have a vasculitis or an acute glomerulonephritis or rhabdomyolysis or acute interstitial nephritis or complex, i.e. upper tract obstruction, something where you don't see it in the bladder, but they still have obstruction. They could have hydro. In these situations, Acting like they have ATN and just saying, hey, I'm just going to be patient. I'm just going to wait for them to get better is going to result in the patient doing poorly. And these people need interventions early. So that a diagnosis is important, but I'm not sure if this is so much an ER diagnosis, but it is a let's make sure the patient gets admitted and gets the appropriate consultations. So clues that you may have a do not miss diagnosis cough and hemoptysis, right? This could be a pulmonary renal syndrome, like a good pasture syndrome or a, a ankyovasculitis. Chronic and recurrent sinusitis or chronic and recurrent otitis media is another indication of like a Wegener situation. Arthritis, rash could be a vasculitis. Tea colored or dark urine is classic for acute glomerulonephritis. Patients that have edema but are not having heart failure makes you scratch your head and go, well, what's this being caused by? You know, again, we're thinking about symmetric bilateral edema. We're not thinking about a DVT in this situation. And then people with a history of autoimmune disease, class of lupus, but SLE and scleroderma are other ones that to, to consider could be problematic in that situation. History of viral hepatitis can also lead to glomerulonephritis. New medications are, all, are always suspects for causing acute interstitial nephritis, and hydralazine causes ankyovasculitis. And then any kind of abdominal pelvic cancer, again, can be causing obstruction. 
and a recent upper respiratory tract infection also could be triggering a myelonephritis going downstream like a diffuse proliferative. And so again, you know, you're, as physicians, these are the kind of things you need to be aware of these diagnoses. So when patients mention these or you stumble across these in a review of systems, you're like, you know what, that along with the acute kidney injury is a significant finding. Let's bring this patient in and take a little bit closer look. God, I hope nobody's still ordering urine eosinophils. This was a hot, hot way of evaluating for acute interstitial nephritis in the 70s and 80s. We shouldn't be doing this anymore. We have pretty compelling data. This was uh, most of the studies that looked at this didn't have biopsy proven acute interstitial nephritis, so just a clinical diagnosis of it, which is lousy. This was retrospectively 566 patients that had a kidney biopsy and urine for eosinophils done within a week of each other. And then the traditional line in the sand has been 1% urine eosinophil. So you look at all the white cells in the urine, and if more than 1% of them are eosinophils, you call that a positive. And in people with acute interstitial nephritis, it was 28 out of 91 cases, about a third. And in patients with acute tubular necrosis, it was 20 out of 61 cases, again, about a third. So no indication at all that this urinary eosinophils favored acute interstitial nephritis, which is supposed to. It really doesn't allow you to differentiate it from ATN. This is a lousy test and should no longer be used. And I think it really has gone away, but just something to be aware of. What should you be doing if you suspect acute GN? send off a urinalysis, ask the lab to do a microscopic analysis and bring the patient in and get the proper consultations, rheumatology, nephrology, etc. Well, look, thank you very, very much, uh, Joel, for that wonderful, wonderful talk. Uh, super topic, and, and I think that's broken it down really, really well. Um, and also thank you again for your wonderful five pearls. Um, Joel, just one last thing before you go. Every guest we have in St. Mungo's, we always finish with the same question, if you don't mind. So I like to bring my guest back on my time machine with me. And if we could bring you back uh, to meet your junior self, just starting their career, just leaving university, based on all the experience that you've gained so far in your career, what one piece of advice would you give your junior self? So when I was going through uh, medical school and my residency, I never did any research. And I kind of felt like when, once I started my fellowship in my early career, that I had missed that opportunity, that that was kind of off the off the table. And I constantly meet people now that have that same story, that they had never done any lab work, had never been in the lab until they got to fellowship and had dove into the lab at that point. And they've had very successful careers. And I kind of, I think I took that off the table too early, that I was intimidated by that. And I wish that I had been a little bit more open to doing research. And even if it had been clinical research, I'm doing some of that now, but I should have been more receptive to that at an earlier stage in my career and been more open to that and not so intimidated because there's lots of people that get a late start there and still have successful careers. I think that's wonderful, wonderful advice. Well, look, Joel, you're a very, very busy person. We're extremely grateful for you joining us today and for everything that you've contributed to, to this episode. So thank you very, very much for joining me. Very good. Thank you for the invitation. So many, many thanks to Joel for the wonderful talk and the wonderful pearls of wisdom. 
Remember, you can watch both parts of this lecture at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. And if you sign up to Continuous, you can access hundreds more world expert lectures for free. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>